for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. We've been talking about grace. Starting last week, I started a series simply titled Grace. And in that first service, the first sermon, I talked about why grace. Because people think that God just decided one day willy-nilly that he was going to give grace to us. But God gave us grace because it's in his nature to love us. The Bible says that the doesn't say that God loves alone. It says that God is love. Amen? And so that means it's God's very nature to love us. And because he loves us, he extends mercy and compassion to us. Mercy being um, a release from what we deserve, the judgment we deserve, extended compassion, and that compassion is exhibited as unmerited favor which is grace amen so we can talk for decades about what grace is because grace is everything that God gave us it's not just salvation it's literally everything God is determined to bestow on his people because he loved us and if we don't understand that it's because he loved us then we're wasting our time with everything else so I wanted to set that foundation first that God loves you. I need, I think the church, we need to just rest in the fact that God loves us. So much in fact that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's a reason why that's the most popular verse in all of scripture because it's the most beautiful verse in all of scripture. That he loved us enough to send his son Jesus to die for us so that we might be with him forever. That's love. Amen? Now, that we've set the foundation for love, or for grace, which is love, I want to talk about how we receive that revelation of grace. How do I know that grace exists and that it exists for me? Before I do that, I want to tell you what revelation is. Revelation is supernatural disclosure of truth concerning divine things. Supernatural disclosure of truth concerning divine things. It's when the supernatural steps into the natural, peels back the curtain of the supernatural so that we can see the magnificence of who God is and what God is accomplishing. There's a story in your Bible about Elisha and his servant. And they're in a city and... Another army comes and surrounds the city. And the servant wakes up early. He goes outside and he sees this army. He starts freaking out. He goes to Elisha and Elisha comes out and looks. And honestly, the story sounds like Elisha's a little flippant about it. He's a, yeah. He said, he said, don't worry about it though. There's more of us than there is of them. And his servant's all, bro, it's just us, <laughs> you know. There's a whole army. He didn't say bro. He said bro thee or something. Um, but, <clears throat> and then God, and then Elijah prayed to God and said, Elijah, or God, 
open up his eyes so that he might see. And he was given supernatural revelation of the divine to see that there was a whole army surrounding them of supernatural warriors prepared to fight the fight for them, that they didn't have to worry about it. That is revelation. There's a time in all of our lives when we need a revelation, a supernatural pulling back of the cloth to get to an understanding where we can see grace. But that's not us. We can't do that. All we can do is pray. I tell you guys, pray that your loved ones be saved. God, open their eyes so they can see. God, pull back the curtain so that they can see because, because we can't save ourselves. Amen? We are dead in our sins, according to the word of God. That the, we are provoked to salvation by the spirit of God, by the plan of God, through the work of Christ Jesus. Amen? This is a, a literal Trinitarian effort to save, to establish grace in us. God the Father planned. Jesus the Son did the work. The Spirit draws. The whole Godhead had participation in ensuring that you were able to feel the magnificent presence of grace in your life. And that should bring you comfort. Amen? And so that's, that's what I want to talk about today. And I want to talk about that today out of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1, 11 through 24. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to tell you what Galatians is. Galatians is my favorite Pauline letter. Because this brother just cuss him to the bone. He just tells them exactly like it is. He holds nothing back. He's everything you love about Paul, man. Just bold and declarative. And like he says some stuff in here that I wouldn't even I wouldn't even say to y'all. That's not true. I probably actually would say that to y'all. But only because Paul said it. Right? But he said it first, and it is, it's it's incredible the things he was able to say to them. But you know what he needed to do first? He needed to establish equity with them first. He needed to tell them, listen, I'm only able to tell you what I'm about to tell you because I have a relationship with the Jesus you say you have a relationship with. And so he begins to tell his testimony. He tells them, this is who I am because of what God did. I mean, we, he, every, the Galatians have a right to know that the person talking to them has a relationship with Jesus if, they're gonna, if he's going to be talking to them about Jesus. Would you agree? If somebody is going to come talk to me about Jesus, whether I'm saved or unsaved, I need to know that they, had, they know what they're talking about. They have experience with Jesus, that they know what they're talking about. They've experienced that. And so I, there's an old saying, and I, and I hold to it. Never let the blind test your vision. Just as I'm never going to let an unsaved person tell me about Jesus. Because the best information they can have is theoretical information, not practical spiritual information. And so Paul, being Paul, decides that he's going to give his testimony to set the stage as to why he has the authority and the equity to talk to them in the first place. And he, this is what he says. In 11 through 24, I'm not going to, I'm going to read a section at a time as I go to each bullet point. 
the first bullet point is the revelation of grace reveals who we are. 11 through 14 reads like this. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through revelation. What's revelation? Supernatural disclosure. Through revelation of Christ Jesus. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was, everybody say I was, advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Traditions. There is nothing destroyed churches or organizations like traditions. How many of you remember the first sermon I preached this year? The name of that sermon was Church in Transition. And I told you during that one that we are going to be a constant in a constant state of transition. Not just transitioning from this building to the next building or transitioning from one idea to another idea. We're going to transition to, to make sure that we aren't comfortable. Whatever has to be done to destroy tradition will be done when the tradition serves no other purpose than to make us feel good about being us. For example... For four years, we had a prayer wall here. It was just on the other side of the coffee bar. It was nice, it was big, it had some nails on it you could go by and you could put a little tag on it with your prayer request. When that prayer request was answered, you were supposed to write in red, answered on it. And then we kept those in a little jar. And I told the people, I said, if, you, if you're coming into church or leaving church, stop by pray over that wall, look, see what people are praying for, believe with them. And for the first couple of years, man, that, that thing was tagged up all the time. And then it slowly dwindled off. And for almost somewhere between six months and a year, I watched nobody put a tag on it and I never saw anybody standing in front of it praying over it. So the first thing I did this year was took that prayer wall down. Because our traditions don't matter if they're not accomplishing anything. And I told you, you need to just be praying. Because if I got to put up something to tell you to remind you to pray, and you're not even doing that, then I'm going to take it down. And some of the folks at Launch Point Church, maybe nobody in this room, there's three services. Some, there were several people at Launch Point Church that came to me mad that I took their prayer wall down. Don't you know how important prayer is? I'm all, no, man, I had no idea. <laughs> I've been a pastor for seven years. Seems like I'd known this for 10 years. I should have known this by now. But it didn't serve any purpose. It was a tradition. That's sidebar. Traditions drive me bad crap crazy. I got to tell you the truth. We burn this place to the ground before we're irrelevant and surrounded neck deep in stuff that don't matter. Amen? So back to the actual point. <laughs> Paul was infamous. This is essentially what he's saying. 
He said, you have heard of my former manner of life. He was a persecutor of the church. Acts 7, verse 58 reads like this. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. This is Stephen, the first martyred Christian on record. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul is Paul, just so you know. So listen to this. They stoned Stephen to death with Saul watching and overseeing their robes as they did so, which means that it's likely because of the position he took and the attitude he had while they were doing it, he was actually an authority figure in that stoning. He was present as the person making that happen. So he was infamous. What was he infamous for? He was infamous for killing Christians. I could prove this to you in Acts 9 and 1 and 2. Now Saul, again that's Paul, still breathing threats and murder. Paul was a terrorist. By every definition, he was a political terrorist. He was a um, religious terrorist zealot. He was a terrorist. He says, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, who was the authority, the legal authority in that time, and asked for two letters, warrants, or and asked for letters, warrants and legal authority. So he went to the spiritual authority, because Jerusalem is a isn't a democracy, it's a theocracy. It's run by the good. The government is run by religion. And because they were, he was in front of the high priest. They were able to give warrants to arrest Christians. And so he went there to seek warrants for him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, the way is the church, the believers, Christians. They weren't called Christians till later. They just called them the people of the way. Both men and women, he may bring them bound to Jerusalem. So let me, let me make sure you're getting this all right. Saul breathed threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and got warrants, went back to the synagogues in Damascus, found anyone belonging to the way, men and women, it didn't matter who you were, if you declared Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you were target number one, and brought them bound to Jerusalem. Now that doesn't sound so bad, except for one, you're arresting people with no real reason. But what do you think happened to them in Jerusalem? They were killed. The Roman government was tying them up and lighting them on fire. Paul was the worst of the worst. He was infamous and knew so. He, he declared it himself. He said it in 1 Timothy 1.15, I am the least of the apostles. 1 Corinthians 15.9, least of the saints. I'm sorry, For, foremost of sinners, 1 Timothy. Least of the apostles in 1 Corinthians and least of the saints in Ephesians 3.8. He knew who he was. In 1 Timothy 1.13, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. And he was right. He's talking the truth. That's who he was. You know what I love, though? Romans chapter 7. 
Paul says, but I ain't that no more. Paul says, I still struggle against the flesh. I do what the flesh wants to do. Sometimes I don't do what the Spirit tells me to do, but there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Even in the fact that you were infamous, even in the fact that you were infamous, you shouldn't walk in condemnation if you belong to Jesus. Because Jesus took that condemnation away from you. Romans 8.1 says so, for there is no condemnation in who? In Christ Jesus. For those who walk according to the Spirit. So it doesn't matter that it's who he was. But that is in fact who he was. He was infamous, but he was also zealous over his truth. Don't you like, if you guys watch the news lately, anytime somebody says something crazy and then gets challenged on it, they say, well, that's my truth. If you got to caveat the truth with your truth, that's a lie. That's not the truth. That's subjective truth, not objective truth. Here's the difference. This is my hand. This is objective truth. Nothing you can do or say is going to keep this from being my hand. Even if I chopped it off and laid it way over there, it's still my hand over there. Right? Subjective truth, I am the best looking pastor in Wilson County. That is my truth. But it's probably not the truth. Matter of fact, there's a guy that pastors in Mount Juliet do makes me sick. He is six foot two, physically fit, got a just a mop of gray hair that's beautiful, man. He carries himself with confidence. And I'm a I don't even like your theology, but I I just stare at you for a little while. Not in a weird way. But that's subjective truth. You understand the difference? You understand the point I'm making? They were bogged down. Paul was excited about his, uh, his subjective truth because he didn't have a full understanding of the truth. And this is what I mean. Paul had access to one Bible, and that was the Old Testament. The Old Testament showed shadows of Jesus Christ all throughout it for the purpose of when Jesus showed up, they would know who he was and what he looked like. One of the greatest shadows in the Old Testament is Isaiah 53, and I'm just giving this to you as an example. In Isaiah 53, it talks about how Jesus, how he would grow up and how he would be meek, what he would look like, not, well, not necessarily specifically what he'd look like, but that there wouldn't be much of anything of excessive attractiveness to him, that he would be crushed and pierced and all these things for our transgressions, why he did it, why it pleased God to do it, and the position it puts us in when he when he suffered through all of those things. Had a man been paying attention to the objective truth and not the subjective truth, they would have seen that Jesus was that Isaiah 53 suffering servant. But the Jews, even to this day, don't believe that. They believe the subjective truth, which is that that is a picture of Israel and the Jewish population who is always meek who has always suffered, who has always been crushed and persecuted. And it, it's always pleased God to do it because they are the priests of God. See? So they have, object, they have, they have a truth. But a piece of a truth isn't the truth. 
my papa used to tell me all the time, he'd ask me a question and I'd tell him, I'd give him an answer and I'd leave out a piece, you know, like the piece that got me, in, that would get me in trouble. And he'd say, let me tell you, if you don't tell me the whole truth, you're telling me a lie. And he's right. And whether they were intentionally telling lies or not, their subjective truth means that they weren't telling the truth. He was zealous, but he was zealous over the wrong things. He, only, he was zealous about the half that he knew. Ain't that right, baby girl? But we can't cast stones at Paul. Right? We all want to, hey, Paul, man, he was the worst. You were infamous too. You were zealous too. I was the worst of the saints, the sinners, the apostles. I was everything that Paul described himself as. Separated from God. Not knowing the truth. I went into the academy where I used to work a couple months ago, a few months ago. And I went to a buddy of mine's office. He's about to retire and or he, just, he has since retired, but he was about to. And I sit down in his office and we got talking and he brought up old times. He said, huh, you know it's not good when they start with a huh. He said, you remember when you did such and such? And I couldn't deny it. I said, yeah, I remember that. He said, oh, what about that? You, you remember that? Yeah, I remember that too. Do you know what I can't do? I can't get mad that he tells me those things. Because he's speaking from his experience. When people come against me because of who I used to be, I can't be mad at them. Because they're speaking out of their experience. What is my job? My job is to ensure that they have a newer, better experience. I don't have to defend myself. I was who I was. But I am now who I am. Because of the I am. And so I was I was infamous. And, and you guys could insert your own story there. Because we're all sinners. Both by birth and by action. Like I, I wish I had the testimony that says, man, I got, I got born... And my first memory is that I got saved and I never left the church. But let me tell you, without Jesus, you still going to hell. All of us were infamous. All of us were led by our own truth. Our own truth. Why? Because of the relationships that we were in. My papa, my granny man, very zealous woman for the Lord. Uh, overly zealous, like Bible thumping. Just, I mean, I love her, but sometimes I, I every time I go over there, I'm like, I'm saved, Granny. I'm okay, <laughs> you know. But so she would tell my papa how he's going to hell all the time, and he eventually gave his life to the Lord. Praise God before he passed away. But, um, but I, he and I were walking out of Walmart back when it used to be the old Planet Fitness out here. And I said, Papa, I said, you, are you going to hell? Am I going to hell? And he said, nah, I'm a good man. I'll be all right. 
I'm not going to hell. If you be a good man, you ain't going to hell either. And I believed that trash until I was 34 years old. Because nobody's good. No, not one. Nobody seeks after righteousness. No, not one. But that's the relationship that taught me what my truth should look like. My friends enjoyed my company and rewarded me for it. Those relationships caused me to think that my truth was okay. But Jesus. Number two, the revelation of grace, although told us who we were, changes who we are. 15 through 6. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's all you got, bro? Like you had a bunch of other stuff you were talking about before you got saved. Your grace moment is just but God, who had set me apart from before I was born, and called me by grace to a purpose. That's all you got? Yeah, that's all he needs. How many of you guys lived years acting like crazy and then a moment of grace changed your whole life? That moment of grace happened for me in 2006. And it happened so fast that by the time the pastor got done preaching and did an altar call, I didn't even go down because I'd already given my life to the Lord. My pastor asked me several years later, he goes, man, I'm looking through your file. We ain't got no record of you getting saved, baptized, none of that. I was like, because I didn't come down when I got saved. I got convicted. I knew what it was. My grandmother told me what that would feel like, you know. I just knew that I was going to hell, and I gave my life to the Lord. I didn't figure there was any sense of making any show of it. And then I was talking to a buddy of mine. He said, you need to get baptized. That's what you're supposed to do after you get saved. And I got baptized at his house in the creek. He goes, oh, all right. What am I telling to you? I'm telling you that God has set you apart to be his own before you were born through his son Christ Jesus and gave you a purpose. Man, isn't that good? That's a, that is a revelation of grace. I tell people all the time, they say, man, how, when, how long after you got saved did you realize you were called to preach? I was like, I knew before I left the building. I knew I had a calling on my life before I left the building. I told Angela, I told Angela, I have a call on my life. Now, I did say, I'm not sure exactly what that is, but I know God's called me to ministry. Now, let me tell you something. It turned out to be this. Maybe turned out to be something else later. It was certainly something else before this. But God called you to ministry too. You don't have to have a platform to do ministry. You have to have a heart willing to be pliable in the hands of God to do ministry wherever you are. Fact of the matter is, most of you have more influence with sinners than I do. I equip you 
to talk to your center friends. How many of y'all got center friends? If you don't have center friends, you better go get you some center friends. <laughs> now, I'm not talking about doing center people stuff. I'm just talking about having center friends. Jesus had center friends. Jesus hung out with sinners, but you know what he didn't do? He didn't sin while hanging out with his center friends. He was a witness to them. Amen. That's ministry. That's all that ministry is. Showing them the Jesus in you so that they might want what's in you for themselves. That's revelation. And it's so good. All of this happened in Jesus. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you know what that means? That means before all this stuff that God the Spirit has cut out of you, when you were the worst of the worst, he made you alive together for him. Having forgiven all your transgressions. Everybody say all. Oh. Man, I tell you, that's a good word. Having canceled the certificate of death, of debt, which is the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way. That means cast it away from himself. All of your transgressions, all of your trespasses have been removed as far as from the east is to the west. The east and the west never touch each other. He says he threw it behind himself. He placed it in the sea. There's several different other things, but the idea is that your sins pre-Jesus don't belong to you. Stop living in them. Stop condemning yourself. Stop saying, man, I wish I... Why would you remind God in prayer about a sin he already forgave you for? God, I'm sorry I did that. God's all, what you talking about, man? He's already let that go. Maybe you should let that go. I'm never going to go to my papa and say, hey, remember that beating I took last week because I did such and such? My papa might be like... Well, you, I forgot. I did forget about that. Let me get on that. Let me, let me solve that one more time. <laughs> Don't bring stuff to God remembrance that He promises to forget because He removed your transgressions from you through Christ Jesus by doing this, having nailed them to the cross by the work of Christ satisfied the judgment and wrath that we deserved. So now we're not condemned. It says, For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. Hmm. You were judged when you took your first breath. But God. And then finally, number three, the revelation of grace gives us identity and purpose. There's that grace moment, that but God moment, but it should stir something in us. Let me read this text to you. 
16b through 24 reads like this. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. This is Paul. Nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. A couple things I want to say there. A lot of people don't realize sometimes you get called to preach and you ain't supposed to preach right then. You need to be equipped. You need revelation above the revelation of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you weren't called to talk about Jesus. So he went away for a while. Now, it's, I believe it's at that time that he got called up to the third heaven. It talks about, I think, in Corinthians, where he received even more revelation. And as you seek the face of God, you'll receive even more revelation and more revelation and more revelation. Then you know what God's going to do? He's going to do the thing that that he does. He's going to send you back to your Damascus. Lebanon is my Damascus. Y'all heard me say this before, but I can't overemphasize it. This is the place that everyone on earth hates me. I'm not saying everyone here hates me. I'm saying if there's anybody on earth that hates me, they live here. And God told Angela and I, go back there. Well, uh, God, uh, I, maybe you forget. I know you forget, <laughs> but there's people who don't like me there. But he didn't consult with us about our mission. He just gave it to us and then reveals it to us. Amen? And then he goes on and talks. And he says, Then three years later, three years of preparation, went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I'm sure during that time he was all, Peter, it's cool, man. I'm not here to kill you. I just want to talk to you about this revelation I got. I too have been saved. Because we know that Peter's attitude, right? He was probably a little nervous creeping up Peter's house. It stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. I think that's interesting. Here's why. And these are little nuances in the scripture. If you'll read them, you'll see them. Right after this thing in Galatians, it talks about the Jerusalem council where Paul went and defended his ministry to the apostles. Who did he take with him? He took Peter and James. You know why he took Peter and James? Because sometimes you don't need to defend yourself. Sometimes people that see the change in you are the better people to defend you. Man, I don't defend my... I don't, I don't argue with people on Facebook the people in this town that don't like me are vocal about not liking me. And you know what? They could be vocal about not liking me. That's fine. You know why? Here's what almost always happens. First off, I'm not that person anymore, so it doesn't matter. I'm arguing. I, my, the, moot, the argument's moot. But somebody that does know me now, who's speaking from a different experience, a more relevant experience, will almost always get on that Facebook post and say... You don't know what the Lord's done in Jim's life. Amen. And let me tell you, coming from them, it means more than coming from me because coming from me, it's just me defending me. They got no skin in the game other than to let the truth be known. So anyway, 
Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you that before God I am not lying. Then I went into the region of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight of the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing. So he started preaching in these areas. And they kept hearing these words. Listen to these words. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. That's a great end to an incredible testimony. He says, He who was once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. When I tell you revelation of grace changes who we are, revelation of grace gives us identity and purpose, they recognized him as a person of the way, as a Christian and a proclaimer of the truth. No longer zealous for half-truths or his truth, but the truth. Amen? No, no longer infamous, but an ambassador for Christ Jesus. This is our challenge, to be that person. This should be our testimony. And we should be willing to tell it. If you'll look in this text, you'll find them. It literally says, I was, but God, I am. Within the context of this text, he said, I was, but God, I am. And I have a, but God, or I was, but God, I am story for one reason. You know what that reason is? It's not to preach. It's so that others may glorify God. That's my purpose. My purpose ain't preaching. Because that means my purpose would be greater than your purpose. And God's not a respecter of persons. He expects, he gave us all the same purpose. To live a life worthy because of who you were, but who you are no longer, because of the grace that he gave, to be a person that causes other people to glorify God. That is, that's good. Learn to fill your mouth with your testimony. And it has to be that. It could be that simple. I preached this, not this sermon, but one, an, an I am, or I was, but God I am sermon at least once a year since I've been here. Because let me tell you, I came to Jesus because someone else's testimony. Someone else's I was, but God I am testimony. Jesus didn't come knock me off a horse like he did for Paul. Jesus was demonstrated in the preaching, the foolishness of preaching. And the Spirit revealed the truth to me. You can do the same thing. Practice your story. There's only one piece of advice I would give you. Make your I was story shorter than your I am story. And here's why. If I spend 20 minutes on who I was, two seconds on I got saved, and then three minutes on I am now, I'm glorifying my sin over who I am now. 
Amen. I challenge you. I challenge you. I, I, I got just. I want to grab all y'all by the lapel, pull you and go. I'm serious. Live a life worthy of the revelation you've gotten, so that others may know God too and glorify Him through it. Amen.